0: Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Cree Annotators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'll be talking to one of my favorite creators in comics, Mark Russell, about his works, including Billionaire Island and Second Coming from Ahoy Comics, as well as a handful of comics that he's written for DC and elsewhere throughout the years. Mark, thanks so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Let's start with Billionaire Island. And uh, just, I guess, to start things off, what inspired this work? What made you want to take on the billionaires of the world uh, in a six-issue kind of satire comedy?
1: Well, I think the moment where I realized this this should be a comic was uh, I was reading an article about billionaires with the uh, the daunting problem of trying to find loyal help to for their for their bunkers that they were building mm. to uh, wait out the end of the world, and it dealt specifically with the problem of like how do you how how can you trust that your security teams aren't going to turn on you after their, you know, their families have died and and they're you know you're the only there's no law and order to keep them in line and it just was like wow this is like um, this is like incredibly it's like so self absorbed that this is their concern like how do I maintain the loyalty of the people who are shooting everyone else to keep them away from my canned beans. You know, that's wild. That's wild. A, that sounds a like a of,
0: detail from your story rather than like an actual <laughs> publication, right. you know,
1: but, but th- I'm sure this is the sort of conversation that's been happening, you know, all over the world with these people that have, uh, basically squeezed in all of the resources, all the wealth from the resources out of the planet. And, and now that they have done so have left it on the verge of collapse. And mm-hmm. it's like, and I think in a lot of ways we were sort of conditioned by comics to imagine that billionaires were our friends that like, you know, if, Mm. if somebody had billions of dollars that they would become Batman or, or Iron Man and they would save the world. Whereas in reality, it's just much more cost effective to buy a private Island and wait out the, the rest of us fighting each other for the, for the few scraps left as they, as they uh, live on their Island. And uh, so I just thought, well, that's a much more likely scenario for how the how the the billionaires will will um, approach the end of the world than than I've been led to believe in comics.
0: It is funny because the the comic book version of maybe it's less funny than it is kind of horrifying, but the the comic version of the billionaire, right, is that not only philanthropic with their wealth, right, like Bruce Wayne does give to Gotham in his own capacity, despite the fact that someone every You know four months decides like hey what like like this light bulb goes off what what if he gave away some of his money and all the comic fans are like (laughs) yeah we know we know um but no but then he's also going outside himself like that actual obsessive selflessness in a way that is the the opposite of kind of what you're describing here which is like a conversation around just the basest human instinct of self-preservation and saying like actually most people if given the option and they had all this wealth they maybe they just look out for themselves. And that's kind but of it, the structure of Billionaire Island.
1: Yeah. And I think we kind of realize that because that's why we consider them heroes, right? Because they do the things nobody else would do. Mm-hmm. And so like there's a 99% chance you give somebody a billion dollars. They're not going to be Batman. They're not going to be Iron Man. They're going to, uh, you know, build their own little fire festival, uh, you know, somewhere <laughs> yeah. in the Gulf of Mexico.
0: So speaking of the fire Festival, what was the what was the research process like for Billionaire Island? So you you mentioned that article's inspiration. I I know with like something like Second Coming, obviously you have the background of biblical analysis uh, in God is disappointed in you. Um, But with this work, did you actually like dig into lifestyles of the rich and the famous a little bit, like kind of go down that rabbit hole?
1: It wasn't so much research as just drawing upon the inspiration of things and just sort of stuck in my craw over over the years. one of the, the uh, sort of operating concepts is like well if you had an international if you had an island in international waters that was not beholden to any country's law what are the sorts of things you would do there and like obviously mm-hmm. the answer for billionaires is like a lot of the things they're doing now with like offshore banks and stuff but then i you know it also occurred to me that there's a lot of things they could be doing that they're not doing now like like operating a movie studio that's not beholden to any of like the the norms and it actually actually acts as like a sort of refugee camp for for actors and producers disgraced by the me too movement they can go mm-hmm. make their movies on this island and there's no you know backlash or legal repercussion and distribute them around the world so i i, I put and i literally called it don't give a shit studios and, mm-hmm. and put it on this this island, and um,
0: on on Fu Island, which is yeah, Freedom Unlimited, Freedom Unlimited, is a
1: nice touch. yeah, uh, or Fu Island, as it's colloquially known, now, or you could have your own private prison, uh, like you you know you could have your own little hamster cage where you keep accountants and journalists and anybody who asks sort of like too many questions or who um, right maybe has information you don't want getting out to the general public. Uh, it's one of the privileges of living on Billionaire Island. You can have your own ensuite uh, prison. Mm-hmm.
0: With the uh, the hamster cage in particular, that, that satirical metaphor I thought hit the hardest, uh, for me at least, because it was this group of individuals. They're kept prisoner on Billionaire Island, right? And that, like you said, there's no structural ramifications against this. Um, they're in a literal hamster cage. But like, it's not that bad, (laughs) like like the hamster cage is okay.
1: That was my metaphor for the comfortable middle class. It's like, yeah, yeah, we're prisoners, but, you know, it's actually kind of comfortable being a prisoner. They 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 change your sawdust regularly. The food's not bad. Uh, So (laughs) it's sort of explaining a lot of what the hamster cage and all the people who live there are sort of explaining is why people don't rebel against the system that so clearly does not have their best interest in mind.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, it's a tricky one too because it's it, the initial assessment is, oh, look at these like absolute like these these people that are so far gone they can't realize they're in prison in a hamster cage, and then as as it kind of progresses, you realize like, oh, like I'm not necessarily actively breaking free from my structural yeah. cages in the same way, right? Like you know, so it's yeah. It, I thought that one hit pretty hard. Most um, of us it,
1: with with a billion dollars would be one of the billionaires on Billionaire Island, and most of us without the yeah. billion dollars would be one of the uh content prisoners of the hamster cage.
0: Right, right. Which is one of the harder kind of revelations and things to really ponder, I, I think, with this work. Um, y- you often tackle kind of massive systems in the comics that you've done, the way like capitalism, religion, ultimately human nature sort of decides and, and determines our lives and our culture. Uh, with billionaire Island, I was impressed again that you find like it, the six issues tackle wealth inequality, but there's also a heavy focus on the impending kind of gradual apocalypse of climate change, of, of population growth, of all these things that are coming, that are real and are happening. What what went into the world building? Um, you know, kind of like because you have this advanced sort of apocalyptic future that is outside where we spend most of our time, which is on Billionaire Island. Um, but what was that process like working with you know artist Steve Pugh and, and building out that world?
1: Well, working with Steve's always great. I worked with him on the Flintstones, and he just takes what I do and makes it like notches it up like so it's 10 percent more absurd which i i really appreciate but you know in terms of building the world itself I, you know i kind of lazily just imagined what like today's world but like 30 years in the future uh yeah and and i think that's what usually dystopian writers do is they imagine current trends continuing for a few decades, and what would what would that look like? And so that's it's kind of all I did to have to build this world where there's you know Florida is mostly underwater, and right. there's um, private islands with hamster cages and uh, and um, offshore banks and movie studios. It, it didn't take too much imagination, I'm sad to say, to to actually construct Billionaire Island. Uh, I I think that in a lot of ways. Um, the one thing that maybe is is uh different about this dystopia is that i think most of us who do live in dystopias don't tend not to realize it mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. i think that this is very much true and the people of that world the overwhelming majority of them don't realize it's a dystopia this is because mm-hmm. they've been in it so long that this is just life uh, that and they don't they don't imagine they're in dystopia because culturally we have come We've been programmed to think of dystopias as this sort of like drab, cold places like East Germany or something. Whereas in reality, an American dystopia would be very colorful. It'd be you know be all kinds of products, all kind you know. It'd have like you know, Miami would still look like Miami. You know, it would, so I think that's one of the, the the ways in which we have sort of been we have self deceiving and not thinking that we are devolving into a dystopia because it's still feels kind of nice. It still looks pretty good.
0: Right. And well, and to the theme of this book, like it feels pretty good for the people who can afford for it to feel pretty good. Right. And I I think that would continue even as, like you said, like Miami's literally underwater. Um, Do you, you're reconvening like you were talking about here with Steve Pugh and the same creative team uh, who you worked with on the Flintstones, which was a amazing, amazing DC comics work that came out and I think shocked a lot of people, uh, Almost entirely, like initially, at least just like what a Flintstones comic is good. OK, I got to check that out. And then, right, it's doing all these really interesting things. Did you feel any extra pressure given the reception that that book got and bringing this team back together? Or was it uh, just kind of fun for you? Or did you feel sort of the weight of like, oh, there's there's expectations for this creative unit now?
1: Well, I, I think that Ahoy gets more credit for that than I do, because I was I had written this not knowing Steve was going to be doing the art or Chris Chuckery who also did the colors for the Flintstones. Yeah and really brought his A-game to Billionaire Island and gives that sort of like uh, Taco Bell flavored dystopia to uh, (laughs) Billionaire Island that that I I was just talking about. Uh, That was really their idea to bring that team back together. And I think what uh, Tom Pyre, who is like the editor in chief at Hawaii, what he was thinking, which I think was great, was that um, this is sort of the bookend of the story of the Flintstones. That the flintstones is about like sort of the um civilization at its beginning and that this billionaire island is more about civilization at its natural conclusion
0: yeah yeah that's an interesting way to look at it because it, it it does feel conclusive by the end even though obviously i guess that world goes yeah. on not to spoil the ending it's a large question but the billionaire island like the implication is that such a degree of wealth and of conflating the wealth with a person's worth is effectively beyond saving I, I think I, I won't spoil the ending again, but like seeing a system of excessive billionaires held accountable is a, a really challenging thing. And I think the book does a nice job of balancing, of sort of threading, like the outcome you want versus the reality maybe is the yeah, way to put it's it, without, ultimately without suicidal, it.
1: It's ultimately suicidal for the world because you're giving all the resources to deal with the problems to the people who are least likely to feel the problems. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a human brain that's shut off all its pain centers and people are like, well, I don't, I don't feel any problem things. are just fine here for me in Dubai. Why should I, you know, give 5% of my $30 billion to, um, you know, fighting climate change to sequestering carbon or, you know, why should I, why should when it's so much more cost effective for me just to build air conditioning, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, And I think in a lot of ways too, it's the, it's, it's suicidal because um, the uh, when you have this much wealth and it's not actually coming from like production, it's not coming from jobs and from people actually creating new technologies and stuff. The wealth is just sitting there waiting to be invested in a bubble. And when you have mm-hmm. everybody just investing these big giant balls of wealth in you know businesses that aren't necessarily creating anything, that's when you get bubbles. So really, I think our choice as a species is to take. a a lot of that money and begin using it to solve the problems, uh, that are imminently facing the earth and that are an existential challenge to the species or to just wait until it's all lost anyway in a bubble crash. So it's, it's like, to me, it's it's like the, the height of, uh, stupidity, but we don't seem to have any choice because the people who are allowed to make the decisions, uh, don't seem to have, feel any, um, need to deal with the problems
0: right and it does seem like you know relying on that philanthropy we talked about in the beginning is it's just not realistic for every for every amount of philanthropy that we do get there's been all these stats flying around recently too about like jeff bezos right is a good example of this of just like wealth I, i don't even think i can comprehend i can see the numbers but i can't actually get my head around what that would mean and he can donate enormous sums of money and then there will be these stats where it's like yes and that is uh, you know like 15 seconds of a day for him he earned that in and also if he paid his entire amazon staff a hundred thousand dollars it would equal that whatever the stat these numbers wind up being it's like it is wealth that is almost incomprehensible um do you think philanthropy has a role in this or do you think it has to be structural like it has to be something where the system disallows it.
1: I mean, philanthropy is nice. I don't want to dis philanthropy. (laughs) Right. Good. good, as good a thing to do with your wealth as any, but it's not going to solve the major problems of the world because one, you can't trust the um, princely discretion of of these people to do what's necessary for the rest of us. You know, Mm -hmm. what Elon Musk might do with the money is he might just build a submarine or, you know, put a, put a rocket on Mars.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: You know, while the rest of us are drowning on earth. And so I think that the res- using the resources of the planet to save the, the planet really needs to be a matter of democratic prerogative, because it should be the people feeling the pain, undergoing the challenges that that should be determining what the money is spent on. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody in their castle might be so divorced from that reality that that they're pursuing their own interests, they're building operas and, you know, giant you know, glass and steel monuments to themselves when these aren't really what the rest of the planet needs. So I I think Mm -hmm. philanthropy, while while nice, is it's just more of a it it treats problems that we need to be dealing with like in an all hands on deck situation as sort of hobbies of the rich and wealthy and famous. And and that's not that's just the human race not taking itself seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: hmm. Do you think the, the, so we're recording this, um, the Monday after the, uh, American 2020 election was, uh, called, do you think for Joe Biden, do you think the outcome of the election, uh, changes any of the, I I would say anger you put onto the page. Am I reading that right? Like it feels like, uh, a work that you are, you are, it feels angrier than your other works. Does that sound correct to you?
1: Yeah, it is angrier. And I think it's also, um perhaps more despondent, um, yeah, less hopeful, but I hope I remedy at the, at that, at the, at the end. And I do offer a little bit of hope, uh, because I, I think it's incumbent upon people like myself, uh, especially satirists, not just to offer critiques, but to give also like what you think the solution should be, what you think, Mm. where is there a way out of this cave? It's not enough just to laugh at people for living in a cave. And I hope I do that a little bit, at least with this project. And yeah, I think that part of getting out of the cave is creating a system that is more responsive to the majority of people and, and the, the, the challenges we're facing. So I think that mm-hmm. the last election, with the will of the majority finally being, you know, winning out through our election system, yeah, we're, we're able to maybe see the light at the opening of the cave and now we can begin to crawl out.
0: Okay. Well said. Yeah, because it's right. It's not it's not an instant solution, I think, by any measure. Um, But it is there's less of that feeling of of the literal supervillain rich guy getting away with murder. You know, Um, it just it doesn't quite feel that way, at least in the few days as we're as we're recording this since it happened. Uh, So Billionaire Island, it also launched more or less in conjunction with like the shutdown. Um, of the pandemic in, in America, at least like in March, there's a fair amount in this work about like, about devastation and specifically engineered viruses impacting the globe. Did you, once it was released, did you worry about the timing given that content? Um, obviously it's not something you could have predicted, but does that feel uncomfortable or, or strange?
1: It just felt a little ironic, you know, because it is a comic. That's at least partially about a pandemic that was interrupted by a pandemic so there's nothing i could really do about it yeah it was kind of disappointing that you know after issue one came out there was a three-month hiatus on the comics industry so people wanting to pick up you know it's it's like reading the first chapter of the book and then putting it in your bookshelf for you know for three months it's you know it's hard to convince somebody to go back to the bookshelf and open it up again and read chapter two but i'm hoping that like um because it is timely, because it is so much about what our world is going through now, and because uh, there is, we now see light at the opening of the tunnel, and we can begin coming out of the cave, that perhaps there will be renewed interest in things like this, and that maybe uh, people will, will read it in book form.
0: Yeah, I, I thought it was a really nice time to come back and revisit it, actually. It might my mood was more in a position to want to read it. I have to say, uh, rereading it for this interview. And then also, like you said, now having it all come together. So all six issues will be collected here. And uh, I think it'll be in shops the week of November 18th, uh, via Ahoy. And of course you can find it, uh, you know, anywhere else that you're, you're looking for your comics. But, um, yeah, I think reading it as a collected edition, I think there will be renewed interest. I've seen pretty good, like critical reception. And then obviously, you know, doing the, the interview circuit and talking about it here. Uh, hopefully people can check out all six issues as a whole. Do you? It feels like a complete story to me. Do you have any intention of revisiting this world? Or is that something you have kind of in the back of your mind?
1: It's possible. Uh, I've already been sort of batting around some ideas for a follow up with, with my editor. Mm. Uh, I don't want to give any spoilers because anything I say about it will give away things that happen with the first one. But yeah, I think there's mm. there's room for a second one if if we can get the team back together.
0: Nice. Nice. Very cool. Uh, Speaking of series that I would like to see uh, come back together, A Second Coming. You write a really good Jesus. (laughs) I have to say. So A Second Coming. It's been thousands
1: uh, of years since someone's written a really good Jesus. So I think we are good. I I take it. It was time. Yeah.
0: yeah absolutely it was time second coming is the story of um it's jesus returns to earth and he kind of pairs up with a superman analog uh the superhero and it's so it's like a superhero christianity crossover of sorts and it's a, I really dig this book um the sixth issue came out in january 2020 i'm curious i i know you've written um god is disappointed in you which is like a what's the word it's hard to a, describe but it's a, a summary reseller. of the bible yeah it's a, a retelling retell-
1: I, I, yeah, it's the way I like to describe God as disappointing you is it's the Bible is as um told to somebody at a bar.
0: It's like, okay, every, yeah, yeah. Every,
1: every book of the Bible condensed down to two or three pages. very easy to understand. and it incorporates a lot of the historical context that's not in the actual Bible, but you that which you got have to make sense of it.
0: yes, yes, so, no, i I truly I, I turn to that every few months when I'm like trying to remember what happened in a story (laughs) because I'm like this language is is so much more useful to me um so given that background what's what's your own like was that were you immersed in religion growing up and is it something you've you've just kind of always been on your mind or did you come to it later and you're like I just this whole thing fascinates and bothers me and I just need to dig in
1: yeah I was raised in a very religious family uh Mm -hmm. fundamentalist Pentecostal um And I left it pretty early on, just seemed ridiculous to me. And so I I assumed that the Bible and and Christianity was was, um, just a bunch of nonsense because so much of what was taught to me was nonsense. But it wasn't Mm -hmm. until I started working on God is disappointing you that I really kind of rediscovered a lot of value in the Bible that I thought, Mm -hmm. wow, there's actually a lot more uh, wisdom in this than I than I than I had imagined, and I just sort of dismissed it. as As a friend said to me, I was like a guy who um, had a bad barber, and so gave up on haircuts, mm-hmm. you know. and And so it was really kind of um, cathartic and therapeutic for me to write. God is disappointing because it helped me recover a certain amount of my relationship with the Bible, and then I realized that largely, I what I knew about the Bible growing up, and what had been taught to me, was a very small insignificant percentage of the Bible and just the mm. parts that they found particularly useful to them, the things that were, you know, and I think this is why I originally sort of like smelled a rat with my religious upbringing because I felt like I was being manipulated. That yeah, I was, right. It was like I was being dealt cards from a dealer who knew all the cards and I, I only knew the cards that were dealt to me. So I felt like mm-hmm. I was, you know, kind of in a, I was in a flim flam. And since I've got to see the deck of cards for myself and can now deal the cards as I choose, I, I find there's a lot, lot more good cards in the Bible that were not dealt to me. And I, I hope that people who do value the Bible and claim to live by it will read something like God is disappointing you, something that will help them make sense of the Bible without necessarily a salesman or a charlatan trying to explain it to them. You know? Right. You should, I I, I um, encourage you to see how the sausage was made.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Because it can, the sales pitch can be very selective uh, a lot of times for ill. I mean, I think one of the assumptions heading into second coming, and, and I think this tends to be true for any religious satire or comedy that gets attention from all the wrong sorts of kind of humorless sources, is that like the work would be making fun of, yeah. of Christianity. And one thing I found, you know, reading the six issues is you're having fun with the Old Testament God, for sure, and and Christ to a degree. But the reality is that it's like it's a clear voice. Jesus specifically is like a clear voice of compassion and reason throughout this work. Like it's not Superman. It's not the superhero analog right? right? And it's not like these other characters. It's actually like the Jesus character. Um, What kind of reaction have you seen since the book came out from religious communities and individuals? I would imagine it's a lot more even keeled.
1: Yeah. And I think that the, the biggest single reaction I get from people is like, I was geared to hate this.
0: Yeah, then I read yeah. it
1: and it kind of won me over. It's like people, a lot of people, saying, "Oh, I bought this to hate read it because I'd heard about it on Fox News or whatever." Yeah. Once yeah. I got to read, it, I thought, "Well, you know, he actually makes some points, and and Christ comes off actually as a lot, lot better than I, I imagined." That has is, to
0: be very rewarding.
1: I yeah, it is, and I, you know, and I, that's kind of the reaction I was expecting from the beginning. It didn't occur to me that people would would begin reviewing the comic before they actually had read it. <laughs> that a that tricky thing to do, right? Yeah, garner such <laughs> criticism from people who had never seen a single page of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was gratifying, uh, and I think in a lot of ways, that's you know what what comes through is the fact that like um, I, I actually kind of admire Jesus because he was one of the few people in the ancient world to, to suggest that maybe there was a better way to run human affairs than bribery and revenge. Which are mm-hmm. sort of the two motivations that human civilization has come up with to keep everyone working and keep everyone in line. Uh, so yeah, I, I think he was utterly brilliant to suggest that there might be a third way.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it, and it reads that way. It's great. Um, I I really and like and the other thing too is like it is critical of things that I think are worthy of criticism. It's also like very critical critical of um, kind of the Superman. Uh, power, like power via violence fantasy that it, we kind of yeah. just take for granted in superhero comics um, and just accept, you know, it definitely calls out, I think, in ways that works like a lot of people are revisiting now, like the boys, because the show is is doing it in interesting ways, but it's like, it calls out how gratuitous and kind of absurd that system is when you, when you really look at it. Um, it. It got me curious, too, like, do you like superhero comics? You write a lot of them, and you write good ones, um, but like, when I look at your stories, they're often really interesting ideas that then kind of you take a character as a vehicle to take us through that idea. Do you super, was that something you're a fan of, would you say? Which I don't mean as a criticism. I want to be, no, clear. I, I'm like, a fan I mean, of
1: superhero comics as you describe them as like being an examination of an idea and following yeah. using them as a sort of a rhetorical device through which to work through an idea. I I think that this is why Superman and the other sort of superhero comics of the late early 30 late 30s early 40s were created they're created as, as thought experiments as to what well, what would i do if i had the power of someone like hitler what would i do mm-hmm. if i had you know the power to stop someone like hitler you know and and uh and i think in a lot of ways over the years the answers have just kind of gotten lazier they've just kind of gotten well mm. if you just beat up all the bad guys then what's left has got to be good right they're not yeah. really about building a positive um, vision of the world so much as they are about destroying anybody who has a negative vision of it hmm. and in the end in the rubble there's got to be something you've got to build from it and i think that's what sun stars the the um the superhero character in second coming what he's discovering is that it's not enough to like throw somebody through a plate glass window or or just to like you know punch somebody who's who's getting out of line it's like what, what you're left with is just a world with one less guy to punch. And there has to be some other way out. And I think that's where, where Christ sort of steps in and Christ was sent to earth to sort of learn how the world really works from the superhero who God kind of admires cause he kicks so much ass. And what mm-hmm. really ends up kind of happening is that, that the superhero ends up learning more from Christ that he realizes the limitations of violence and power to solve the world's problem. And then in the end, all the real problems are, are solved with like empathy.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's beautifully done. I I think, um, what the last issue came out in January, um, I've seen in interviews, I think you described that like you have ideas or hopes for a longer run. Uh, where are you at in terms of potentially bringing that back or what are your hopes for second coming?
1: There is a second series that I've already written uh, and issue. The first issue of it comes out on December 16th. Awesome. And so, yeah, there will be at least one more volume of uh, Second Coming. And I get ideas for at least three or four volumes. So hopefully there will be more after this one, too.
0: Nice. Yeah, I look forward to that. I, I hope so as well. So people should definitely add that to their pull list or check out the first volume and, and see if you are so inclined. But again, it was a very good read. Um you've been doing comics now since uh around 2015 with Prez, right? It was definitely yeah, the biggest. Oh, it's my very first. Very first. Okay, perfect. Um what do you think has changed the most for you now that you've got, you know, five years essentially under your belt, uh is from Prez to now? Like what what goes through your head differently in ways that you know you weren't thinking about five years ago?
1: Well, back then I thought like um, every comic I write is potentially the last comic book I'll ever write. So I felt like I kind of had to throw everything in the kitchen sink into that comic. Like if I've I've got anything to say, I've got to dump it all into this. Whereas now I realize that I've got something of a career going and I'm going to have other opportunities. So it's like I can make a comic like Billionaire Island. That is almost just about you know, wealth inequality, or I can make another right. one that's just about religion. I don't have to sort of like throw, you know, have a have a fire sale where I'm just like dumping out all my ideas. Cause I don't know if I'm going to ever to get a chance to talk again.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Cause I, I think one of the things that appealed about Flintstone and impressed to it in its own fashion was, was that approach <laughs> was right. that fire sale approach? Well, like, every is issue? like
1: Sort of the perfect venue for it because it's right. Like, the civilization with all these different sort of factors coming to play at the same time, you know, uh, Fred has to go work at the quarry and deal with the boss. And then he's got to go to the church and deal with like, you know, Gerald and, you know, so and his wife's an artist. So it allowed me to like, talk about my feelings about art. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, it was like the perfect vehicle for that sort of kitchen sink approach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, and it, it works really well. No, it's interesting though, because yeah, your your career trajectory now is definitely like more, okay, let's dig in. Let, let's dig into those topics now that I've got time and I've got space. Um, and it's right, it's a it's a different kind of storytelling. Uh do you have like um I guess what I was gonna ask you is like, do you have characters or license projects that are of particular interest to you? How do you go about sort of selecting what comics you want to be on next or at least in the license game right because you're doing some stuff across dc you've worked on like red sanja in the past um is it something where it's just the opportunity rises and you take it or do you actually have like certain kind of criteria that it needs to meet
1: well for the uh the intellectual property that's owned by the big two um the franchises it's more about what other editors and things think I'd be right for. And they come to me with mm. suggestions, and then like, or sometimes like, uh, possibilities, and I and I tell them like which ones sort of like resonate with me, or mm-hmm. you know sometimes it's like they just say I want you to pitch for this. We have like a specific idea, and I want you to pitch for it. Um, so I, I do a fair when I'm writing like the big two or other sort of, um, other other ex, pre existing intellectual property it's more about them approaching me and saying, well, what about this? Whereas when it's my creator own things like second coming and billionaire Island, that's where I sort of use my complete freedom to talk about what I want to talk about or what yeah. you know, the stories I want to do.
0: Interesting. Sure. No, that makes sense. So speaking, I mentioned Red Sanja following the dynamite comics, kerfuffle this summer promotion of work within the known hate group known as comics gate you publicly announced you'd be leaving the book um and i i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what went what goes into a decision like that and for folks who want to see the ties cut you know immediately like why contracts and timing and creative partners don't necessarily render it that simple like what did you have to process before you could pull that trigger essentially
1: well and i want to say first off that i really enjoyed working on red sonja and um i'm really happy with the work we did there and i don't mean to hurt the f- franchise at all and the it's people a good who, book it is and the people who own red sonja are fantastic uh and i had a really good time writing and i feel like i, I poured a lot of myself into that comic in a way that you know i, I hope people do read it even though i'm i i discontinued writing the series. But, you know, I was always scheduled to only write 24 issues of Red Sonia, And okay. we were in talks about maybe doing more. But then I said, I'm, I'm going to opt out after 24. And just just did it there. And yeah, it was large, it was the, the decision to not do anymore, because I didn't want my work sort of being it, what, what killed me was just seeing my work associated with comics gate, and being sort yeah. of promoted side by side with it, knowing having personally seen these people harass other trans creators or, you know, women creators that Mm -hmm. I, I, some of whom I know personally and some of whom I don't, but just to be associated with what has been like, sort of like a a movement built on harassment and then dehumanizing people. It just, just made me sick. So I uh, said, I'm going to take a hiatus uh, from, from dynamite until, uh, I'm convinced that there's no longer any association between dynamite and this movement, Yeah, uh, which I found reprehensible. So, um, yeah, there were some conversations both with my editor, Nate Cosby, and with um, artists that I was working with about what this would mean for them. And everyone that I spoke to was, was pretty supportive. Nobody said, please don't, you're going to kill me. So and because I, I feel like they felt similarly, they felt like this was just a stand that had to be made. So yeah, I mean, it would have been a much more difficult decision if somebody had been sort of like, if you do this, I will be destroyed. But yeah. luckily, it never came to that.
0: Okay, okay, good deal. Um, do you feel like they've made any strides? I know they've made a, a handful of
1: yeah, I kind do.
0: of a, half apologies, but you do.
1: I do. Uh, it's the sort of thing where, where where time will tell if it sticks. But I but I do believe that they are sincere and their mea cupolas and wanting to move on from that
0: good 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 cool uh what's up next for you uh as far as so we know second coming is coming in december um what what other projects do you have on the horizon things that you're particularly excited about uh
1: i got another project with steve uh coming up in january through dc uh superman versus imperious lex and it's about Ooh. a planet where Lex Luthor is like sort of the god king and worshipped by everyone, and Superman is the uh, the, the villain everybody hates. Mm. So I'm looking forward to that. I've got some other things which cannot be announced. Is yet.
0: that part of Future State? Yeah, yeah. That's part, part of that of line. Cool.
1: And I yep. got some upcoming projects with DC, Marvel, and other publishers that I just infuriatingly can't discuss yet because they haven't been formally announced.
0: Right. Okay. Will that be your first Marvel work? I think it would be right
1: well i did the the captain america uh one shot the snapshots uh with oh the, right right the More Kurt recently, Busiek yeah. line and that was a that was a great experience so i think that they they tapped me for another project which i can't discuss based on that but yeah i had a great time working with him and working on the the captain america snapshot that was that was my first marvel work
0: awesome awesome what was it what was it like working with kirk busiak in terms of like him curating that line was it was it a very different kind of comics creation experience. It's a very the... different
1: experience for me because yeah. I'm working with somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, not to say that other people I don't I've worked with didn't know what they're doing, but I mean, I, this is the first time working with another writer who, yeah. who, unlike me, knows what he's doing, and so it was really kind of cool just to sort of pull up the stool and listen to him talk about like effective comics writing because you know I'm I'm like as you mentioned I'm still pretty new to this game so it there's so much that i just sort of like and i think in the way it's been my charm the fact that i don't know what i'm doing the fact i'm just sort of like telling a story as it seems natural to me and not really caring about the um the vagaries of comic writing but a lot of those vagaries are there for a reason and a lot of the things he said to me really were make sense one thing he told me which is small but sort of blew my mind was that like uh, when you're writing sound effects in your scripts, they shouldn't have punctuation because they're not mm. words, they're sounds. Sounds don't have periods and exclamation points. And it's like, wow, he's so tr- he's so right. I never that's even interesting. thought about it. I that. feel
0: like you see a fair amount of exclamation points yeah, on, and, on sound effects. Yeah.
1: But apparently that's that's rank amateurism. Uh <laughs> so, so I stopped putting punctuation in my sound effects. And yeah, just little things about like um what to look for in the uh the the lettering draft stage and just, I just felt like in a lot of ways, I got this free masterclass series from Kurt Busiek. And yeah, and I just like enjoyed talking to him too.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Uh, if you could recommend, uh, something that you're reading now have read recently that other people should check out, what would it be? Could be comics or otherwise.
1: Well, because Halloween was too long ago, I've been reading a lot of Junji Ito. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I read I read Geo, which was I thought fantastic and one of the probably the creepiest thing I've ever read. And mm-hmm. I I read Smashed his collection of like thirteen shorts. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's I, I recommend it all. It's it's all fantastic. Uh, also, uh, reading um. Eric Shanower's um, Age of Bronze, his story about the uh, the Trojan War. I'm on volume three of it and it's really expansive and epic and I, I highly recommend that as well.
0: Nice. Very cool. Good, good. All right. So we've got second coming, coming in December. We've got Billionaire Island will be out the week of this uh, podcast release, the week of November 18th in shops. People check those out from Ahoy. And then of course, we'll look for more from you from uh, DC and Marvel, it sounds like in the coming days. But I think otherwise, is there anything else you wanted to plug?
1: No, I think that's it. I think we got it.
0: All right. Perfect. Thanks, Mark. This was a pleasure and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Dave.